Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Geoffrey Deaver, interviewed by broadcaster Mark Lawson, live at the 2023 Theakston Old Peculiar Choir and Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion with a master storyteller. Good afternoon, Harrogate. Um, so, as Vasim said, we are here to discuss the work of Jeffrey or Jeff Diva. Um, inside of these, we're going to start with these two, which are the two most recent books available, and then move out and discuss some other things. Um, 42 full length books are listed on um, HarperCollins' website, most recently, these two. Many, many other short stories. Uh, and this is the 14th book about Lincoln Rhyme, um, the uh, tetraplegic uh, forensic invest, uh, psych, um, uh, investigator. A criminalist, in, yeah, investigator, criminal, yeah, protagonist, yeah. moneymaker for me. That, that's Certainly. Um, this is the 14th. The 15th is available in November in this country. And tantalizingly and sadly, we weren't able to get copies available here because of the mayhem it would cause on the international copyright um, market. It would be so, a war between us, uh, yeah, the two countries. That it could easily. So you'll have to wait for those. And then this, uh, Hunting Time, is the fourth novel about Coulter Shaw, who is a reward um, seeker. And uh, so we'll be discussing these in particular. And when I was reading these two books um, this week, I was very impressed, as I always am with you, about your story organization and the amazing smoothness of it mm. and the introduction of subplots and characters and so on. And I think any, and there will be many people in the room who are writers or want to become writers, I think anyone can learn from Jeff's books for that reason. But I wondered about that. Do you, at this stage, past 40 books, quite deep into series. Do you ever get stuck? Do you ever get into a corner you can't get out of? Sure, well, well uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Vasim. Thank you, all, um, all attendees. It's such an honor to be here. And uh, I'm gonna, I, you know, I started writing when I was quite young, about 10. And as a matter of fact, it was, uh, I mean, this is my 20th Harrogate. I was here for the very first one. And that's when I was 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I, some, I see some faces out there. It's a little hard with all these. Some of you are saying, "Oh, really? He looks he looks pretty good for that for that age." <laughs> um, well, I'll, let me uh, let me say a little bit about the way I approach writing, which is you know somewhat uh, responsive to your your question, and, and you're you're saying that they move smoothly and how I. I, I organize everything ahead of time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, uh, I flew into uh, Heathrow the other day on an airplane that had, guess what, been built according to a blueprint, right? Uh, you don't go to uh, an airport and get on an airplane where the designer has said, you know what, bring me some of that engine stuff. Put an engine here. <laughs> and the ailerons on it. We need wheels. And then all those video games that the pilots play, you know, all those fancy things. And I'll just put it together and see how it goes. Um, in other words, I outline. And uh, there are... 
uh, you know, the writing world is divided into two camps. The writers who write according to an outline, and those are known as the outliners. And then there are the uh, writers who don't, and they're known as the pantsers, as in seat of the pants. Uh, one isn't better than the other. It's whatever works for you. Nothing's more sub subjective than writing. But I have found that over the, uh, the, the 40 um, some odd books that I've written, and the short stories too, that if I plan it out ahead of time, it's just much it's much easier. And that's when you don't run into writer's block, because if you hit a block, you're doing a, you know, have a big organizing board. You've seen those in the crime shows and so forth. And you have a little, uh, a, a crime occurs here, right down in the middle of the board. Oh, I don't know where to go from there. I'm blocked. Well, you just ignore it and go on, go on elsewhere. And then if you do, also if you do an outline, you know, you can, you can write in any order that you want. Mm. You know, you may wake up, you've got your outline, it's minor, about, you know, 90, 100 pages. And you, you know, you look at the outline, today I'm supposed to write a, a, a you know, a horrible scene of a, a murder and the, the, um, the, you know, the birds are singing in the sunshine and you just don't feel like killing somebody that day. We've all had those moments, right? <laughs> Some of you are just blank face. No, I just want to kill so somebody. The rain, the rain is good today. Yeah, yeah this kill, is good. Yeah. Kill lots of people, yeah. Well, you know when I want to kill people? Okay, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm a writer, as many people are here, and what's the one thing we like most in our world? Excuses not to write. And what is the number one excuse not to write? Yes, the internet. And specifically... YouTube, and more specifically yet, videos of baby goats in pajamas. <laughs> there is nothing more cute than that. Um, and look them up, but not now, because I'm talking, but afterwards, <laughs> look them up. Okay, so, um, you know, I wake up, and uh, I don't want to kill anybody, so I'm going to go online and look at my little, cute little baby goats. Cable is out. Oh my God, what am I going to do? So in desperation, I call up the uh, cable company and I say, my cable's out. I can't see my goats. I have to write. Get somebody out here. They say, tomorrow at um, um, 8.30 in the morning, we'll get, we'll get a cable person out there to fix it. Well, guess what? 8.30 comes. No cable person. 9 o'clock, 10, 11, 12, <laughs> we go through to 4 o'clock. The guy finally shows up and he looks at the, you know, my DVR box or whatever it's called. Well, that's a, a, a KV42. I can't work on that. It's his cable company. Those are the days when I want to kill somebody. <laughs> and guess what the name of the victim is and what cable company he works for. So to make a long story short, outlining allows me a lot of flexibility. And it also does, in all seriousness, it does lead to um, a smoother sense of writing. It leads to, I think, a better product. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates said you can't write your first sentence until you know what the last sentence is. And uh, not everybody feels that way, but it's, it's, it makes me uh, feel more comfortable when I put together a book or story. What about, even though at this stage, though, doubts, professional doubts, is I was um, listening on the radio to an inter interview with a writer who's had 12 um, Sunday Times of London bestsellers mm -hmm. in a row. And she said that she'd just thrown away 20,000 words of her oh. next novel yeah. because she thought this doesn't work. And you know, but, why, you know why she did that? Because she did an outline. <laughs> if you outline, uh, well, no, seriously. Uh, you know, so that's uh, what I'm interested in. So yeah. that can't happen if you outline. It cannot happen if you okay. outline because, well, here, here's a perfect example. Don't raise your hand because you might be thinking of me, but have you ever read a book that should not have been written? Well, of course you have. And why does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens, because I've been in this situation. Uh, let's say you come up with this incredible idea. You know, we call it a set piece. You know, it could be a big action scene or uh, just a very emotional scene between two people. And it's the bang up start of a great novel. I mean, this is going to be the killer novel. And that scene is so good, it writes itself. Chapter one, bang, out it comes. 
it takes you 10, 15 minutes to write 30 pages of that. And the steam is up, the energy's going, you write chapter two, out it comes. Chapter three, a little bit slower, eh, you know, but you're still kind of working things out in your head. Chapter four, five, six, and you hit that brick wall. And now what has happened is you have written probably 200 words of very good, well-crafted prose because anybody in here, if you have an idea to write, any, I guarantee anybody in here can write good prose if you know what you're going to write. But you hit that chapter six, 200 pages, 250 pages, and you have no clue where you're going to go. And you look at the middle, and the middle is full of cliches, you know, like, have we ever seen this before? Our hero detective has a fight with his captain, and the captain takes his gun and his badge away from him. Never seen that before. And then you look at the end, and there's no ending. You don't know where the villain is. The villain's going to come, uh, come uh, you know, from somewhere off stage. Um, you know, it'll be a deus ex machina, you know, that the Greek expression translates uh, into English. And I don't know how to end this friggin' book. <laughs> and um, so you're confronted with two choices then with your, you know, your wonderfully crafted 250 uh, words, uh, 250 pages of prose. You can do, you're going to get my take on it right now. You can do the, um, uh, the intellectually dishonest, the cowardly, the reprehensible thing, and add in those cliched middles and the deus ex machina ending and put it out into the stream of commerce for the readers. And that is a sin because we owe readers everything. I mean, readers are gods. You, every, every word I write, I have in the back of my mind, is this gonna make them happy? Is it gonna be a give me a break moment where this just doesn't work? Uh, is it gonna be too much violence, not enough violence? And so um, out comes the book and you know, you've done your, you're, you've done your job, but you haven't done your job the right way. As opposed to the intellectually honest, the courageous, the morally upright thing, and throw out every damn word. Every single word. Because if you can write a good chapter for a bad book, think of the great chapter you can write for a, uh, a good book. Um, and so I have not, I, I have, that has happened to me. I've thrown out those 20,000 words, and then I thought, how about if I just come up with a, an idea where I don't need to do that? And I write those post-it notes, you know, I'm a, a novelist, like you know, I am probably 60, 70 post-it notes. Each one's about a chapter. Chapters are getting much shorter now. Pretty soon my books will be 130 chapters and they'll still be, you know, fairly short, very short chapters because our attention span is shrinking a bit. Um, but um, that, that, so that's kind of my approach. I'm really very interested in that. So you are, the attention span is talked about a lot, but you oh. are consciously writing shorter chapters. Oh, yeah. In fact, I've, I've developed a, a new style, and I, I copyright it, except you really can't copyright this concept. And I call it the streaming style of writing. And my books are, uh, my, the books are shorter, uh, chapters are shorter, uh, paragraphs are shorter. Um, the books are still, um, you know, the, um, the still, I call them roller coasters. You know, my books are very up and down. They have a surprise ending. After that, there's a surprise ending. If you, if you know my work, you know, I like my twists. That's, that's what this is all about. It's so exhilarating. But um, the, I, I have more dialogue. I have less introspection. Uh, I use uh, much shorter descriptives when I'm talking about, um, uh, about setting because I want the book to move as fast as the streaming TV shows go. And, you know, we writers are up against that. There's only so much entertainment time out there. But I feel that we writers have it right because a book is the most emotionally engaging experience we can have in the creative world. You go to um, see a movie and it sticks with you. And I'm going to see Oppenheimer and I'm going to see Barbie. 
probably not on the same day, but I will see them. <laughs> and uh, and I'll, I'll enjoy them. But you know what? After I don't know how long, I'll have fond memories of it, or I'll be excited about it, or I'll be tense about it, or critical of it. But that kind of fades. But I can tell you, time I read uh, the first time I read Lord of the Rings, I still picture the Shire in my mind because I created that. Tolkien set me up, but I created that. And that's what books do. They, they bring us in. And so I feel that books are, uh, frankly, the best emotional experience we can have. But the streaming TV, not, not feature films anymore, but streaming TV and video games to some extent are stealing away the audience. And I just want somebody, not necessarily a young person, but I'm thinking of younger readers now, who uh, potential younger readers who get very excited about a you know maybe a Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime thing, and then they get a book and they say you know what this does the same thing and I can read it in one sitting which is what I I try to create, and you know what it was better, it was better than that Netflix crime show. That 450 pages would be quite a long sitting, but you're trying to make it. That they could do the, it in a few print, hours. Because I'm older, the print is much bigger on that, Mark. Yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the point, um, it's a good time to be talking about this because you talk about the competition from streaming TV. Although within a few months, people may have to go back to the old-fashioned book because um, the writers of streaming TV and indeed the actors are now on strike um, in America. Mm. That's over a number of things, but a large, a significant part of it is AI. Oh, are, uh, are novelists yeah. going to have to go on strike over AI? Well, uh, I teach a course in writing, and um, we talk about everything uh, from uh, you know planning the book to um, uh, what should be in that dreaded middle, and then the how we we set up the endings to make them just exhilarating, and. Um, my most recent course I taught in New York, I had to bring up the subject of AI because it's in the news everywhere. And I said, you know, the, the thing about large language models, which is what we're talking about now, like chat GPT and so forth, the thing about those is that they are, are, are actually very talented at putting together words, at writing, at crafting things. They can write um, you know, prose very well. They know the rules of grammar, they can draw a huge experience. They know punctuation, syntax, and so forth. Um, but when it comes to fiction, they really are not able to touch the emotional core that is the basis of fiction. They cannot craft something that has that resonance within readers' hearts. And in addition, large language models now um, create from a bias because what they're drawing on is predominantly a, frankly, a, a, a white male-dominated uh, mass of fiction that is now changing, thank goodness, but that's what's being scraped up on the internet. And then I stop my speech and I look up to my students and I say, and by the way, everything I just told you was written by ChatGPT in response to my question, <laughs> can you write fiction? <laughs> so um, it's coming, but... Um, I, uh, I was just talking to Vasim, and I, uh, he said, if uh, I, for instance, and I'll use myself as an example exclusively, um, if a book came out under my name that had been written by ChatGPT or whatever these new systems are, he would be um, disappointed, and he wouldn't read it. And I agree with that. You know, I completely agree with that. Um, computers are amazing. I uh, have used one since the, the, uh, the time they came out. If you go to my website or look at some of my 
uh, YouTube uh, videos, you'll see my keyboard. I, I burn through a computer about uh, every nine months. I see some of you nodding out there. And uh, the, the keys fall off. And I've worn down, you know, when you, I touch type, and some of you touch type, I'm sure some of you do. And you know, you have those little bumps on the F and the J to orient your, your fingers. So you're typing away like this. Well, on my computer, after like five months of typing, those little nubs wear off. And I type something, and I look at it, and my fingers have moved to the right. <laughs> and I've created an encrypted version of my book that <laughs> even Dan Brown could not figure out what that is. So anyway, my... Uh, uh, my, my point is uh, that, uh, you know, I, I believe in technology, uh, the, the outline, like the, the airplane. I like to fly on, you know, jets that have redundant systems. I like to write books on computers that have backups uh, to them. But uh, there is a time when, um, you know, that's going to come to an end. I, when I'm, I'm saying when uh, AI draws the line and we can't cross that. And, you know, ChatGPT came out in uh, September. This is completely new, and so we have completely in uncharted waters. But it's interesting that that um, term, um, large language model, is, as you say, it's because they're aggregating from everything that mm -hmm. has previously been written. So probably ChatGPT, they, they could write a Jeffrey Deaver novel, well, Mark, but it would be an aggregate of all the it's, previous ones. It's, it's interesting you, you say that, because uh, I think you had mentioned... Uh, Lincoln Rhyme, uh, tetraplegic, we say quadriplegic in America, but same thing, you know, paralyzed from the, the neck down. And uh, just as a lark, I said, write a paragraph in the style of Jeffrey Deaver. So, so Lincoln Rhyme paragraph. Sure enough, he is uh, using his criminalistic skills, which is a word I have not coined, but it's a rare word. It means forensic scientist. Uh, he's using his skills uh, to solve a crime that occurred on the Empire State Building. He then walks up to the 30th floor to follow <laughs> a, uh, a clue. And that right then told me I do not dare use chat GPT because something like that would, would sneak in. Will it come to the point where it will edit? I mean, I use spell check. I assume you do too. I use uh, grammar check. And uh, they are, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I shut it off because I, I have very distinctive prose style as most most uh, fiction writers do. And so you shut off the things that say, like, this is not appropriate for business writing. You know, you shut that off. But it, it can still, you know, it can find when you missed a semicolon, things like that. It's very helpful. Well, it, that's using the computer to help us write. At some point, maybe the editing function of ChatGPT will take that a notch higher in which case, or Bing, I think, they maybe, I think they're based on chat GPT. Maybe that will be an, an, an assistant, you know, it will be like our scribe uh, or our transcriber. Uh, that, I could see that happening, but um, I've tried, uh, tried to, to have it edit, and it, it, it's not good. It just doesn't work. So maybe in, in future years, we'll see. Well, that's fascinating, the example of it trying to write. Um, but as I say, it would automatically write things that have been written before, mm -hmm. whereas the challenge, particularly um, 14th, 15th book of the series, it's a dilemma, I think, isn't it, in that there are readers who would happily take the same thing every time. We there are writers, we won't mention them, who do actually mm -hmm. write the same book um, every time. Well, there's a um, uh, sort of, a, I, I've done um, work with uh, Hollywood over the years. I've had three or four films made that you may have seen, TV shows. And uh, oh, and one is uh, coming out after the Super Bowl in America. It premieres. It's called Tracker, and it features the Coulter Shaw character that I think Mark and I will be speaking. Yeah. Now, uh, the Super Bowl. Okay, 
Okay, it's football. Now, um, you don't use your foot in it. You really don't. You kick this thing a few times. And by the way, it's an oblong, so it's not even a ball, really. So it's a bit of a misnomer. And you have, uh, you know, football here, and it's a ball, and you kick it. So that's, that's fair. We call it soccer in America, of course. Um, but um, it, it's the big game. It is the big game. And uh, I don't know, 40 million people watch it. I don't because I'm not a big fan of, uh, fan of sports. Uh, I'm not going to mention Chelsea. But anyway, I... Uh, I uh, um, I don't follow sports very much, but this, I was so lucky because my TV show airs right after the Super Bowl, and most Americans are too lazy to get up and do anything but watch what is on <laughs> after the Super Bowl. So uh, whether, I haven't seen it yet. Whether it's any good or not, I, I don't, don't quite... Uh, don't quite know. I'm sorry, Dave Chris, you were asking about what? <laughs> yeah, no, but I was going to ask you actually a sports-related question. Oh, you don't, oh, oh, you, yeah, don't, you yeah. don't have to know about sport, but yeah. it's just... Um, so when I was watching the Wimbledon final last week, which many people would have been here, one of the commentators was saying that, um, so you have Djokovic, who mm -hmm. has played right. 35 of these Grand Slam finals, but the, the, one of the uh, commentators had watched him practice the... And he's, he was making tiny little changes. And mm -hmm. it's the same in a game we have called cricket, where people who have had amazing careers, little tinkerings with the... I'm, and, and what they say is you can still... You can always learn, no matter how long you've sure. been doing it. Now, would you, would you apply that to writing? Yes. And in fact, now, thank you. I've, I've gone back to my original yeah. thought. My books are more... Because of the outline, they're much more coherent than the way I speak. So believe that. I mean, I start at the beginning <laughs> and then end at the end. But what I was going to say was that... Um, uh, you know, looking for a new book, we're talking about tweaking, maybe changing things. There's this adage in Hollywood, and it's a bit of a joke, that when a producer is looking for, uh, and they call it product, uh, you know, that's not a book. Mark does not have, have two books there. He's got product. When a producer is looking for a product to turn into a, um, um, a film or TV show, they want something that has been wildly successful in the past and yet has never been seen before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we, you know, we Twitter at that, we laugh uh, a bit, but, you know, there's some truth in it. Because when I go to read an author that I like, I want to know what I'm getting. You know, I don't want to pick up, uh, you know, I'll use a, a, a deceased author, uh, someone no longer with us, I'll pick up one of my favorite authors of all time, John le Carre, and uh, I don't want to pick up his next uh, his next, you know, novel, and find he's—it's—it's it's about aliens from outer space, who, uh, you know, who who fly and flying saucers over to America to fight, you know, with the cowboys. Um, I want to—I I, I want to know what I'm getting because I love his prose. I love the general stories about MI6, um, you know, about the geopolitics uh, that he writes uh, that he wrote about so well. But I want something different, and he did that. Like the the little drummer girl, you know, very different from Tinker Taylor, uh, so but the same same concept, and so uh, that's what I I try to do, and I, I'll tell you, okay, you know, forty three books in, and actually it's like forty seven, but there's there's four books from hell I don't talk about. Um, <laughs> oh no, 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 and and you beg your publisher, you know, don't have anybody look for them because they like to bring back your yeah. early stuff. Oh please go away, don't do that. But um, you know, I, I just I I, I like the uh, idea of crafting something that my readers will like. And I, I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had. I uh, woke up this morning at, at the hotel and uh, it was 3.50, 3.52 to be exact. And uh, I'd fallen asleep at midnight 
uh, you know, time zone, because I was in London last week, then America, then back here now. And uh, so, that, you know, that's kind of, that, that messes me up a little bit. But basically, I was wrestling with a concept for a, a book I'm writing right now. And I, I lay in bed for probably three minutes, and I was just, my pulse was sudden. I said, I, I, I've got to fix this. It's not right. It's, readers are going to read it, and they're not going to like it. And I, you know, after all this time, you think I'd be able to get it right easily, but it, no, no, it's got to, I have to wrestle through it. And uh, there's that moment, and writers out there know this, you know, there's that moment when you, you hit it right, you hit the right note, and you know the readers are going to be happy with it. And then, you know, when you're, you're missing it, and you're cheating. There's a, an example in John Le Carre's career, actually. He wrote one novel that was not a spy novel. Was that Call for the Dead? Well, no, he wrote two crime, crime novels at the beginning, right. but then he went spy fiction. But no, he wrote um, a book called The Naive and Sentimental Lover. Oh, I didn't read that one, no. Mm-hmm. Well, no one did. That's, oh, well. why he, that's, why, <laughs> that's why I never wrote another one. Um, but it was um, an epic emotional novel in the German manner. Oh, my. Huh. And people didn't want it, so he... Yeah. But it, it, it makes very strongly the point you make, which is you've got does to be very careful morning, with your... I think, what, is, what does every... I said, when I wake up every morning, sit down to write, whenever it is, what, is this the best for the reader? Yeah. I mean, I get paid to make up st- stuff for a living. Does it get any better than that? I mean, it, it happens at the White House and, you know, Whitehall Street, but we understand <laughs> that. But, I mean, I do it legitimately. But in terms of people, if, if we talk about the um, midnight... Locke, the 14th Lincoln Rhyme, criminologist, that was the word I couldn't find at the beginning, mm. short he is. Um, so people will know him, a lot of people will know him, they know roughly what they're going to get, but it's varying it, and I was very interested in that. So in, in this book, you put him under, I mean, a, a fantastic opening scene, you put him under pressure in mm. a way that we haven't seen before. He's um, a, an expert witness in a criminal case, and someone really gets the better of him. Yeah, that was, that was great, great fun to write. Um, I don't write legal thrillers. Um, you know, people like John Grisham and uh, Steve Martini in America, and you have your, uh, of course, Rumpole of the Bailey here. Uh, not, those weren't, uh, you're familiar with them, of course, not huge thrillers a la John Grisham, but still set in the courtroom. Because the law takes a long time. You know, Jarndyce v. Jarndyce, that was a long <laughs> case. And there's not a lot of high points and car chases in that book that I recall. Uh, and, and my books take place really over like two or three days. But I, I nonetheless have the opportunity, because I write about crime, to um, put um, legal scenes in the book. And that's what um, opens the Midnight Lock, where Lincoln Rhyme and, uh, you know, criminalists and most police are also witnesses. That's what they do. Uh, they don't just catch the bad guy. They have to go in court and testify as to what the uh, uh, what they learned about the uh, from the evidence or what they saw the bad guy doing. And so he's um, on uh, basically in, in the courtroom and testifying. And the defense attorney gets him and gets him in a big way and gets him in a way that is so near and dear to his heart because Lincoln Ryan lives for evidence. He loves Amelia, now married, they're now married. Uh, he uh, loves science in general, but he loves getting that bit of evidence that will put a bad guy away. And this, this defense lawyer got that excluded. And when you get evidence excluded, what happens? The very, very bad guy uh, walks. And then, well, you're, if I told you, you're not going to read the book, but... <laughs> another, another interesting thing about that, and sorry, Mark, just to interrupt briefly, um, talking about getting 
um, the, the, giving readers uh, something they're going to expect and then something different. I always look for new topics. And uh, that's one of the different things. And, and in Midnight Lock, um, there are two aspects that I found fascinating. And these are, uh, and we call them hooks. They're, they're things that authors put in books that, you know, we add research and interesting uh, factoids. And in this book, it's, it's lock picking. And um, I thought, uh, well, that would, I've never done anything about that. And actually, that idea came about because I, I locked myself out of my, my house once. And, uh, it, 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 and I, so I called a locksmith, and you know, wisely, they ask for proof that it's your house, because otherwise they uh, would, uh, you know, might be party to a crime. And uh, so whips out this little gun and a little tool and zzz, opens the lock. Oh, that's my next book right there. This was so yeah. cool. And of course, what did I do? Went out and bought a set of lockpicks, because... Uh, they're legal uh, for, uh, well, they're, they're legal for almost everyone. Uh, if you have a criminal record in some states, you're not allowed to buy them, and you, have, you can't, there, there are certain limitations on them, but most people can buy them at our, our uh, do-it-yourself stores. And so I got that, and I, I, okay, this is going to be so good. And then, you know, I'm doing this, and two hours later, <laughs> I, I won't tell you what I said, but I'm a, um, let's just say I'm a much better um, uh, much better author than I am a lockpick. But, but it was helpful to know that information, how, how, how it actually works. Okay, that was one hook. The second part of the, the book that I was actually more interested in was um, the, um, the phenomenon uh, now with the so many different uh, internet, uh, well, I was going to say threads, but that's now a, a real phenomenon, so many internet uh, aspects um, of... Uh, uh, content moderation that is so significant now. And I was not aware of this, but um, I don't know about Twitter particularly. Well, who, nobody knows about Twitter now, but Threads is the new meta slash Facebook version. Uh, there's Blue Sky, that's another one. Uh, there are other, uh, there's uh, like, I think Snap, I'm not sure what that is. There's Instagram, still Facebook, you know. I don't think anybody under 30 looks at Facebook anymore, but it's still there. <laughs> And, uh, but this phenomenon of content moderation to make sure that uh, bad things don't show up. Um, and there's certainly uh, you know, obvious things. But then these content moderators have to look at this, some of this terrible, terrible stuff. They're underpaid. There are tens of thousands of them working for Facebook, I believe. And the psychological impact on that and also the power they have because they can let some things, let some things through and then throttle down things that maybe should be out there politically. And so the book, you know, Samuel Goldwyn, the American filmmaker said, hey, you want to send a message, you know, go to Western Union. Don't put it in your book or your movie. But I think books should have a little resonance. And so that the Midnight Lock does have something about the, uh, you know, the responsibility of, uh, of social moderation and how it can be used as a uh, weapon. And this is a good point to ask. Another thing that has changed for authors, there's a form of content moderation now in um, publishing, mm. which is sensitivity reading. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And particularly the question of whether someone who doesn't have that experience can yeah. write about it, which clearly arises for you with Lincoln Rhyme. Um, sure. And, you know, you've written and, uh, many women characters. So have you been, what's your general attitude to sensitivity sure. reading, and have you been affected by it? My, uh, my attitude is this. A writer can write anything he or she wants. Full stop. Next sentence. You have to be absolutely true to the subject you're writing about and 100% accurate 
and 100% intellectually honest. Um, because if not, I would now have written, at this stage of the game, uh, books about a 73-year-old bald white man. And moi. And that is not compelling fiction. We have the, uh, the duty to look at society, to look at other characters, and write about them, but do it in a 100% accurate way. And if you cannot do that, then don't write it. It's as simple as that. It takes a lot of work. I've written about uh, uh, black characters. I've written about South Asian characters. I've written about Asian characters. I've written women. I've written about disabled individuals. Um, I've written about all ages, from uh, you know uh, kids up to um, um, you know up to elderly folks, and uh, it's it, it's absolutely fine to do. Uh, don't cheat. Don't put a fake name on the book that may be of uh, a dif different ethnicity. You are yourself, but uh, just be accurate about it. And I have to say that it's really hard to do. And so you really have to think about: Do I want to? Uh, you know, set a book maybe in 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 South Asia um, when I haven't been there and I have no intention of going and I don't really understand uh, the culture. And I use um, readers uh, often if I'll have a, uh, a a character of color, for instance, I'll have a, a friend read it. And uh, and uh, publishers do have they're, they're called sensitivity readers, and I have no no problem with that. I, I mean, you know, the publishers, of course. They want to publish a good book. They don't want to get sued. They don't want bad publicity, and that's understandable. But um, I kind of stand by my uh, stand by my position. I've never had any any real problem. I've had to. Um, I probably had to change change some names because they were. In, in fact, an example. I had a name that uh, and I was glad this was caught. I had in my research. Uh, it was a. I learned it was a Kashmiri name. And then it turns out, no, it wasn't. It was from uh, India, from South and India, much more common. And it wasn't, would not have been impossible for it to come from Kashmir. And uh, a sensitivity reader caught that, and I thought, well, sure, why not change it? I didn't want to, certainly didn't want to offend anybody. That's the last thing I want to do. You know, make somebody read one of my books and feel bad. That's, that's ridiculous. They're all about excitement and joy, I hope. And I was scaring the hell out of you, too. Mm. There's that. <laughs> Um, but when Hollywood comes back from the strike, there's really, as you will know, quite a strong, uh, authentic casting movement in Hollywood, mm. oh, which yeah. is that a wheelchair user must be played by a wheelchair user. Mm. Some people go further and apply that to writers, but you, you, uh, would you draw a distinction between those? Like, can, can an actor play anything? Oh, I would think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I would think so. I mean, Othello. I would like to see a you know a black actor play the uh, that role uh, certainly. Um, and uh, but you know, the, the, the movies are, are fiction. I guess you have to look at what the role is in particular. Um, and uh, I, in in my instance, I have um, the Colter Shaw thing coming out. A fellow named Justin Hartley is playing the um, the character. And the two of the major supporting characters in my book are a, a straight couple, retired couple, and in the um, the, um, the the TV show, uh, they're a, a gay couple, two women, and I, uh, you know, I, I, that's great. You know, I think that's that's fine. Readers are going to love that. And we're going to open up for questions in a moment. So get your questions ready, but we should talk um, a little bit about um, hunting time. So Colt Shaw, as you say, who is a reward. Um, Seeker. But again, mm -hmm. that thing we're talking about, that there are only so many plots. So 
what I was very impressed by in Hunting Time is what you do is that the idea of someone looking for someone is mm. obviously a standard plot, but you complicate it in various ways. Um, they're looking for someone who doesn't want to be found, but in order to protect them from someone else. So there are two people looking for the same <laughs> woman. But when, if he actually, if Coldshaw actually finds her, that's when it will get really, really dangerous. So mm. it's taking a basic hunt plot, but then making it as complicated as you can. Yeah, there are, I, I heard there, a writer will tell you this story I'm about to mention very just my, an anecdote, uh, many different variations of this, but I adhere to the subscription that there are two plot lines, only two. And other people will say three, four, seven, or whatever, but two. One is that a stranger comes to town, and the other is that somebody goes on a quest. Mm -hmm. And a stranger comes to town would be the movie Shane, the George Stevens movie, which you may have seen, a Western, Dirty Harry movies, The Stranger Comes to Town. A quest is Lord of the Rings, for instance. And, uh, or Star Wars, actually. Star Wars, yeah, oh, yeah. exactly, yeah. And, um, and so um, the um, um, hunting time falls into that, uh, going on a quest to find the, uh, this woman and her daughter. And then um, I, I kind of, I love the Stephen King comment that when asked how he creates his books, he says, well, I come up with memorable characters. I put them in a pressure cooker, close the lid and turn up the heat. And I love that, <clears throat> which is what I, I try to do. And um, so hunting time is just that. And every, you know, my definition of, of fiction is this, and I make my students write it down, but you don't have to. You can just let it, just think about it. Um, our goal in writing fiction is to create the most emotionally engaging story we can. Full stop. That's what we do. How do we do that? Well, we create the most emotionally engaging story we can by creating living, breathing characters, both good and bad, and having them confront escalating conflicts and encounter questions, all culminating in a particularly difficult uh, uh, so, uh, situation to solve, which solution uh, or which uh, conflict and question are all resolved at the end to the reader's satisfaction. So the trick is to have them confront increasingly difficult questions and conflicts, but then resolve them at the end. Because no, no, in all my books, no loose ends, everything's tied up. We know when the characters leave the story, either vertically or horizontally, because not everybody survives the end of my books. But it's that conflict, that question. So every few chapters, at least, sometimes within a single chapter, you have to come to a stumbling block. Why? That gets you to turn pages. Mickey Spillane said, people don't read books to get to the middle. <laughs> you know, we read books to get to the end. And how do we get people to read books to get to the end? We raise questions that drive the story forward. And Hunting Time is maybe one of the best examples of that because every chapter, there's a question. We've got yeah. you know, like three or four people pursuing this, this woman and, uh, and her daughter. And uh, maybe the daughter's got a secret. Maybe the woman's got a secret. Maybe Coulter Shaw has done something he should have done. Maybe these two guys. And then there's a third guy coming after them, too. And everything comes together, uh, orchestrated at the uh, end. And I, I didn't get any sleep for the, like the writing that, I mean, literally, it took me like three days to write the end to get it. As, as good as I could. What would you do if one of your students said, I'm not going to have a blueprint, I'm just going to write sentence one and then sentence two and see where I go? Oh, I'd say, there's the door. <laughs> no, no I, would say, I would say this. Um, uh, my, my prior comment, um, there's nothing more subjective than writing. 
And my friend Lee Child, who uh, who will be appearing tonight, he uh, he may have changed his his uh, technique, but as far as I know, last we talked, he does not outline. This fellow named George R. R. Martin, you may have heard of him, Game of Thrones. He doesn't outline. Um, it, it it's it's what telling the story is the most important thing, and what gets you, the reader, drawn into the story is the is the goal. And the other thing is, I'm very as you've gathered, I'm very scattered. How many times did I have to mark, ask Mark to go back to what was the question again? And outline um, helps me uh, stay true to the story because I can look at it. And there are people who uh, do the same thing. Uh, I mean, Lee writes such fantastic books and Andrew working together, of course, now. They write such wonderful books and uh, that's, they're perfectly plotted. And th th but they get that in their mind. They can do that as they, they move along. And for me, it's just easier to write it down. Okay, we'll take... Um Questions, yeah, we've got, um, the, so there's a microphone on that side and I think one on the other side. So let's get that, there's a hand raised. Um, Jeff, first of all, thank you for your wonderful books. Thank you. Massive thank you. Um, one of my favorites of yours is Garden of Beasts, mm -hmm. set in 1936, uh, Berlin. And I wondered if you thought there were particular times in history that really lend themselves to um, uh, uh, environments for thrillers. Wonder, are we living through a similar sort of time? Indeed. Uh, Garden of Beasts is a book of mine set in Berlin in 1936 uh, about a um, hitman with the mafia who is, um, and he only killed bad people. He's a rather en endearing character, German ancestry. And he is uh, enlisted by the uh, OSS, uh, Office of, well, actually, there's the Office of Naval Intelligence, our CIA at the time, to go kill Hitler's aide because we knew in 1936 that Hitler was rearming. And it's a fictional character. Um, and I, I researched the book um, a lot, two years. Uh, it did well, it won awards. Um, and why did I write that book? Uh, it's my 9 11 book because um, I wanted to write a book about systematized evil. And 9-11 uh, was too close. Uh, I actually worked. It, I did work with people in the Trade Towers. My office, when I was a lawyer, was right next door to it. Uh, so it was very close to me. Um, I, I knew friends who were badly injured and, and, and died. And so, um, but that was too close. <clears throat> and also, to be honest, I don't find anything uh, fictionally compelling about the concept of religious terrorism or whatever sect. It's too simple-minded, frankly. However, Hitler's, uh, you know, I would call it a pernicious and sadistic brilliance in enlisting many people within a, a country to um, subscribe to, uh, you know, very dark uh, goals and motives, I found fascinating. And I thought it was a lesson that we should, we should be aware of. And so that is a, a lesson we... Um, we can take with us uh, wherever we go. So, and I, not really, not completely responsive to your question. Now, uh, America, oh, I tell you, man, we've got, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, we have such polarization. I know you have it here too, to some extent, but in America, I've never seen it like this. And- uh, Jeff, I was just gonna pick up on the gentleman's question with that indeed, that you are likely to have readers who plan to vote for Biden if it's him, plan to vote for Trump if it's him you will have readers who are armed to the uh, teeth at mm. home. You will have others who think that um, guns should be outlawed. 
That must be very difficult to negotiate, is it? Uh, it well, it is, but I, I do have uh, some, uh, I, I will say, well, I talk about intellectual honesty and what is that? It's just, you know, standing up for, for, your, for your values. And um, um, in my books, well, here's a, here's a perfect example. I have characters who use firearms um, because firearms are a phenomenon in America, but they are not um, fanatics as most of the NRA are and National Rifle Association exactly. people who have propagated guns. And do you know that um, there are more guns in America than there are Americans? Um, it, it's, it's astonishing. Um, but um, I, I will not actually write a political book, but I will write a book about how politics uh, will affect people. And I think um, I, there will be a book about the, the bifurcation of the American society. We, we actually are talking about civil war, maybe not a violent civil war, but a type of civil war that may have a violent outcome because nobody expected January 6th to happen, and it has. I'm sorry, I digress. I, I, no, I, no, I, that was really interesting. Um, so on this side, yes, over on the far side there, we've Gentlemen got there, the hand raised. I think that's my friend over there. Is that Neil? Hi, hi, Neil. <laughs> hi, Jeffrey. Nice to see you again. Um, nice to see you. Are you... I've got quite a lot of Kindle uh, short stories. Are you planning any more short story books to bring them out sure. in hardback? Oh, thank you. Um, yes, I, um, I love writing short fiction. I've written about 90 short stories. And um, the uh, thing about a, a short story is this. It, it, it exists for the twist only. Um, you don't have time to develop characters. I mean, you want them real, of course, uh, but uh, it, it should be that you come to that last page and it's, oh my God, the 12-year-old girl was the killer and, uh, and she dispatched the serial killer because he taught her everything she needed to know. And you don't really care at that point because you haven't really invested a lot. I love short, uh, short fiction. Uh, I do, um, yeah, and I have, I have three, I've published three uh, uh, anthologies, or we call them collections, if it's a single author of, of short fiction. I have three more in the works, and they will be out in in hardcover. I also do publish um, with, uh, and you know, it's a phenomenon. It's uh, Amazon. Uh, they they do publish. I publish short fiction with them, and I I like that. It's called Amazon Original Stories, and I like that because uh, and they're they're Kindle only. They they're they're not in print, so they really don't compete with with Harper Collins, my wonderful publisher here, but. Um, what I like about them is uh, people love short fiction, short attention spans, and there, a single story will get 80,000 downloads. People will, uh, will read it. And, and of course, the short story then kind of propels you into my books where you can buy the Harper book and so forth. So it's, you know, it's a very handy thing. But I love short fiction. And thank you for that, Neil, because I, was, uh, I meant to mention it, but I'd forgotten it. Back to this side. Um, and back of the room, so people don't miss out, anyone towards the back of the room? <laughs> Obviously, disability language changes over periods of time, and I'm just wondering, with Lincoln Rhyme, and obviously with um, Bone Collector coming out, tw I think, 25 years ago now, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm right, is there any times where you really have to make sure that when you are writing him that, that certain words or certain phrases have not changed? And is there anything that when you are writing that you would go, I'm definitely not going to put that in because that will not be helpful towards the disability community. Sure, very good. As you've gathered, and I've repeated uh, ad nauseum, um, these books should be emotional experiences. And um, there's, there's a concept called the fourth wall in fiction. Are you familiar with that? And the fourth mm -hmm. wall is simply that, uh, means that um, the, um, the, the audience is aware that the, 
author is kind of winking at them, that they are, they're looking at a fictional construct. They're not looking at a real, real word. And that, that's a valid, I've done that a, a few times. It's a valid thing. You kind of make the, uh, the reader the participant. Uh, but I think it, 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 it creates an emotional distance. So um, I will be very careful about anything that makes the reader um, encounter a speed bump. And so for that reason, I don't age Lincoln Rhyme really. Um, he, because he's a quadriplegic, he takes advantage of certain medical um, advances that will help improve his condition, as anyone would do if it's feasible. But aside from that, I, um, I, I keep the books as timeless as possible, and that's, that's true of all of them. I don't want readers to think, oh, he's not wearing a mask. I don't talk about COVID. Um, and many writers do, and that's it's, it's, it's fine. That's valid. It, maybe there's more immediacy there, but I want my my stories to shine through, and the story is that the characters who are real encountering these conflicts and the big surprise ending, surprise ending, surprise ending. Uh, th thank you. Good question. And, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I've done this for many, many years, <clears throat> and it's rare to hear a question you haven't heard before, and that was one. So I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and um, thank you again to echo that gentleman for, for your novels. My first introduction to you is Bone Collector and Praying for Sleep, and yeah, I certainly needed some sleep that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would just be really interested to know, you mentioned that you do the outline of your novels, your, your blueprint, but do you always know when you start a, a blueprint and an outline who is going to be the perpetrator or the villain? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, the question, if I understand correctly, do, do I know where who the villain is and where it's going to go? Um, it, to a large extent, but that's the discovery process of the uh, outline. Um, I know that a. I'm not going to give anything away here. I'll, I'll make this up. Uh, you know, although it's a good idea, and if you want it, please take it. That the um, uh, the butcher who's uh, upset of, with the big wholesale chains now is taking his job and he moves from, from being a butcher of meat to being a butcher of people. Clever idea, actually. And, um, um, and that's the concept. But that is such bare bones. And that Lincoln Rhyme or, 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 uh, or Colter uh, Shaw have to go after him and save the day. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just, okay, that's a good idea. But from there, it's going to evolve into be something uh, that is very... Uh, very much enhanced, but doesn't differ. But I may get to the point where I realize it's really a stupid idea, you know? And, uh, and there's like a butcher's union in America who's gonna rise up in arms <laughs> and, and, you know, campaign against my books if I do that. And so I throw the whole thing, whole thing out. But generally I have, like the bone collector, I, I had the, the concept right there. Uh, the, um, the books generally, um, uh, start with a very basic idea. And I, I have to say, I, I, you know, writing for me is a chore. It's very meat and potatoes. Uh, it, I have to sit down, I have to do it over and over again. I rewrite 50 times. And uh, I finally bang out something that works. It's functional. You know, it's not great. I don't write great prose by any means. It's functional. But if I have any, if I was born with anything, it's an imagination. And I have idea. I have 30 or 40 ideas for full-length novels uh, some of them, believe it or not, are not going to get written, but uh, they're out there. And uh, so, so I, I get the idea, and it will be that. And then I go from there. 
uh, and you know, revised when I do the outline, but no, pretty much it's, it's there from the very beginning. We have time for maybe um, one more. We've got time one more. So um, who would like to be the last person? Well, my friend and I really enjoyed the Catherine Dance Oh, books, thank you. And we wondered if you had any more um, in line. Sure. Uh, Catherine Dance was a, a character in four of my books, a series. Uh, she's a kinesics expert. And that's uh, somebody who looks at your body language and can tell if you're lying or not. Fascinating subject. And, uh, well, you know, I'll just, I'll put it this way. <clears throat> um, I'm a business person. And I create a product. I'm very proud of that. I work hard at it. It's a product that my readers like. Uh, but I do it to make a living. And the Catherine Dance books did not do well. They simply didn't. People didn't buy them. And uh, I have no problem with writing with other people. I'm exploring writing a, a, a standalone book with a, a, another author at this point. I, I did one with John Sanford, for instance, uh, and uh, a short story. Great writer. And uh, so, um, but I, I couldn't just hand over my character to somebody else to do it. And, uh, you know, like Jim Patterson does it. That's fine. I, nothing wrong with it at all. I just, I just don't work that way. And so I would have to write a Catherine Dance book. I have one outlined. I've got it. It's in the works. It will appear. It just won't appear quite as soon as I like. However, there's a, uh, a film uh, company, uh, I can't talk about details, in, guess where? The United Kingdom, who's very interested in doing a, a TV series featuring Catherine Dance. And if that happens, guess who's going to sit down at his word processor in five <laughs> minutes and bang out that novel? So. Now, right, just before well, we finish tantalizingly, um, the other author you're thinking of collaborating with, mm -hmm. you're not going to tell us. I am not going to tell you. And it's not Lee Child. It is not Lee okay. Child, no. Well, that narrows it down a bit. So <laughs> then you can guess. Thank you very much to HarperCollins for uh, sponsoring this event. There'll now be a book signing at which uh, Jeff mentioned the four books that he never mentions. Someone will turn up with a bag. With I'll tell you what, they, they, they have done that. And in fact, I learned this about book collecting. Any book collectors out here, you know, like uh, you can get a Dickens for a relatively low mm. price. Try getting a, a, a Sue Grafton. It costs mm. 20 times that. Um, and so these, if it's rare and a first edition, and these books were so bad, they didn't, there were no print runs. And now you go to eBay and you pay $500 for this crap. Oh, I'm sorry, you pay $500 for this stuff. <laughs> and I don't know. Anyway, well, Mark, thank you so much as no, always. Well, and thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank all of you. Harper Collins, and all my friends out there. So. Thank you for listening to Hit Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.